Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 312, Channing's Likeness to God. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, you're going to hear my modernized version of a talk delivered by the famous American Unitarian pastor William Ellery Channing at the ordination of Reverend F.A. Farley in Providence, Rhode Island in 1828. In this talk, Channing is pushing back forcefully and yet carefully against the traditional Augustinian Calvinistic emphasis on humans as just crummy, completely ruined, worthless, abject worms, incapable of doing anything good, really not good for anything at all, except for God sovereignly, single-handedly plucking out of sin and saving. Channing thinks, and I agree, that that emphasis is out of balance with scriptural teaching about human beings. Check out this very interesting talk and see if you agree with me. One quick note on terminology. When he talks about the divinity of human beings, he's using words like divine or divinity or deity more loosely than we're sometimes accustomed to. You see, in arguments about the Trinity and Incarnation, it's common to use words like divine to mean fully divine, like having the divine nature. He's not using it in that way. All he means by divine is, in some way, like God. And how could that be a controversial point if, as Genesis says, men and women are made in God's image and likeness? And there are a lot of elements in early Christian tradition which talk about human salvation as divinization. Check out Trinity's podcasts 59 and 60 if you want to hear more about those. But a famous New Testament example of speaking this way is 2 Peter 1.4, in which believers are described as participating in, or some translations say sharing in or partaking of, the divine nature. That doesn't mean coming to be a god. It's a contradiction to suppose that something which is not God should come to be God. If we're talking about essences, you just necessarily have whatever you have. You can't change essences. But that's just to say they're not talking about essences. To become a partaker in the divine nature is just to become like God, to have in a greater degree qualities which God has to the highest degree. Here, then, are the thoughts of William Ellery Channing on the important scriptural theme of human beings' potential to be increasingly like God. Likeness to God by William Ellery Channing Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Ephesians 5.1 To promote true religion is the purpose of the Christian ministry. For this it was ordained. On the present occasion, therefore, when a new teacher is to be given to the church, a discourse on the character of true religion will be appropriate. I do not mean that I shall attempt, in the limits to which I am now confined, to set before you all its properties, signs, and operations. For in so doing I should burden your memories with classifications and vague generalities as uninteresting as they would be unprofitable. My purpose is to select one view of the subject, which seems to me of primary dignity and importance, and I select this because it is greatly neglected, and because I attribute to this neglect much of the inefficacy and many of the corruptions of religion. The text calls us to imitate God, to seek conformity with or likeness to Him, and to do this not fearfully and faintly, but with the spirit and hope of beloved children. The doctrine which I propose to illustrate is derived immediately from these words and is built into the whole New Testament. I affirm and maintain that true religion consists in intending as our main goal a growing likeness to the Supreme Being. Its noblest influence consists in making us more and more partakers in the divine nature. True religion is to be preached for this goal. 
Religious instruction should aim chiefly to turn our aspirations and efforts to that perfection of the soul, which makes it a bright image of God. Such is the topic now to be discussed, and I implore him whose glory I seek to help me to display and urge it with simplicity and clarity, with a calm and pure zeal, and with genuine love. I begin with observing what all indeed will understand, that the likeness to God which I propose to speak of belongs to our higher or spiritual nature. It has its foundation in our original and essential mental capacities. In proportion as these are developed by right and vigorous exertion, our spiritual nature is extended and brightened. In proportion as these lie dormant, it is obscured. In proportion as they are perverted and overpowered by the desires and emotions, it is blotted out. In truth, moral evil, if unresisted and habitual, may so blight and destroy these capacities that the image of God in a person may seem to be wholly destroyed. The importance of this assimilation to our Creator is a topic which needs no labored discussion. Everyone, of whatever name or sect or opinion, will meet me on this ground. All, I presume, will allow that no good in the whole universe or within the reach of omnipotence can be compared to a resemblance to God or to a participation in His attributes. I anticipate no objections here. Likeness to God is the supreme gift. He can give nothing so precious, glorious, blessed as Himself. To hold intellectual and moral affinity with the Supreme Being, to partake of His Spirit, to be His children by receiving excellences like His, to grow evermore like the perfections which we adore, this is a happiness which obscures and annihilates all other good. It is only in proportion to this likeness that we can enjoy either God or the universe. That God can be known and enjoyed only through sympathy or similar attributes is a doctrine which even Gentile philosophy discerned. That the pure in heart can alone see and commune with the pure divinity was the sublimest instruction of ancient sages as well as of inspired prophets. It is indeed the lesson of daily experience. To understand a great and good being we must have in us the seeds of the same excellences. How quickly, by what an instinct, do congruent minds recognize one another. No attraction is so powerful as that which exists between the truly wise and good, whilst the brightest excellence is lost on those who have nothing congenial in their own hearts. God becomes a real being to us in proportion as his own nature is unfolded within us. To a man who is growing in the likeness of God, faith begins even here to change into vision. He carries within himself a proof of a deity which can only be understood by experience. He more than believes, he feels the divine presence and gradually rises to a fellowship with his maker to which it is not irreverent to apply the names of friendship and intimacy. The Apostle John intended to express this truth when he tells us that he in whom divine love or benevolence has become a habit and life dwells in God and God in him. It's clear too that likeness to God is the true and only preparation for the enjoyment of the universe. In proportion as we approach and resemble the mind of God, we are brought into harmony with the creation. For, in that proportion, we possess the causes from which the universe sprung. We carry within ourselves the perfections of which its beauty, magnificence, order, benevolent adaptations, and boundless purposes are the results and manifestations. To a kindred mind, God expresses himself in his works. It is possible that the brevity of these hints may provoke the accusation of mysticism against what seems to me the calmest and clearest truth. I think, however, that every reflecting person will feel that likeness to God must be a source of sympathy or accordance with his creation, for the creation is an offspring and a shining forth of the divine mind, a work through which his spirit breathes. In proportion as we receive this spirit, we possess within ourselves the explanation of what we see. 
we discern more and more of God in everything, from the frail flower to the everlasting stars. Even in evil, that dark cloud which hangs over the creation, we discern rays of light and hope, and gradually come to see, in suffering and temptation, proofs and instruments of the highest purposes of wisdom and love. I have offered these very imperfect thoughts that I may show the great importance of the doctrine which I am so eager to urge. What I am saying is that likeness to God is a good so unutterably surpassing all other goods that whoever admits it as attainable must acknowledge it to be the main aim of life. I am saying that the highest and happiest function of religion is to bring the mind into growing accordance with God and that the truth and worth of a theology should be tested mainly by its tendency to move us towards that goal. Some will object that the scriptures, in speaking of human beings as made in the image of God, and in calling us to imitate him, use bold and figurative language. It may be objected that there is danger from too literal an interpretation, that God is an unapproachable being, that I am not warranted in ascribing to humans a like nature to the divine, and that we and all things illustrate the Creator by contrast rather than by resemblance, that religion manifests itself mainly in convictions and acknowledgments of utter worthlessness, and that to talk of the greatness and divinity of the human soul is to inflate that pride through which Satan fell, and through which we involve ourselves in that fallen spirit's ruin. I reply that, to me, Scripture and reason speak differently. In Christianity, particularly, I find perpetual testimonies to the divinity of human nature. This whole religion expresses an infinite concern of God for the human soul and teaches that he deems no methods too expensive for its recovery and exaltation. Christianity with one voice calls me to turn my regards and care to the spirit within me as of more worth than the whole outward world. It calls us to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, and everywhere in the sublimity of its precepts it implies and recognizes the sublime capacities of the being to whom they are addressed. It assures us that human virtue is very precious in the sight of God and speaks of the return of a human being to virtue as an event which increases the joy of heaven. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the brightness of His glory, the express and unsullied image of the divinity, is seen mingling with us as a friend and brother, offering Himself as their example, and promising to His true followers a share in all His splendors and joys. In the New Testament, God is said to give his own spirit and all his fullness to the human soul. In the New Testament, we are exhorted to aspire after honor, glory, and immortality, and heaven, a word expressing the nearest approach to God and a divine happiness, is everywhere proposed as the goal of our being. In truth, the very essence of Christian faith is that we trust in God's mercy as revealed in Jesus Christ for a state of celestial purity in which we shall grow forever in the likeness, knowledge, and enjoyment of the infinite Father. Lofty views of the nature of humankind are bound up and interwoven with the whole of Christian theology. Do not say that these are at war with humility. For who was ever humbler than Jesus, and yet who ever possessed such a consciousness of greatness and divinity? Do not say that our business is to think of our sin and not of our dignity, for great sin implies a great capacity. It is the abuse of a noble nature, and no one can be deeply and rationally contrite except one who feels that in wrongdoing he has resisted a divine voice and warred against a divine truth in his own soul. I need not, I trust, further pursue my argument from revelation. There is also an argument from nature and reason which seems to me so convincing and is at the same time so suited to explain what I mean by our possession of a like nature to God that I shall pass at once to its exposition. When the Trinity's podcast returns, 
Channing argues for his doctrine on the basis of how, he thinks, we form our concept of God. That we have a kindred nature with God, and may bear most important and ennobling relations to Him, seems to me to be established by a striking proof. This proof you will understand by considering for a moment how we obtain our ideas about God. From where do we get the conceptions which we express by that grand name? From where do we derive our knowledge of the attributes and perfections which constitute the Supreme Being? I answer that we derive them from our own souls. Our conceptions of the divine attributes are first developed within ourselves, and from there we transfer them to our Creator. The idea of God, sublime and majestic as it is, is the idea of our own spiritual nature which has been purified and enlarged to infinity. Within ourselves are the elements of the divinity. God, then, does not have a merely figurative resemblance to us. It is rather the resemblance of a parent to a child, the likeness of a kindred nature. We call God a mind. He has revealed himself as a spirit. But what do we know of mind except through the actions of this cause within us? That unbounded spiritual energy which we call God is conceived by us only through consciousness, through our knowledge of ourselves. We ascribe thought or intelligence to the deity as one of his most glorious attributes. And what does this language mean? We have coined these terms to express operations or general powers of our own souls. The infinite light would be forever hidden from us, did not kindred rays dawn and brighten within us. God is another name for human intelligence raised above all error and imperfection and extended to all possible truth. The same is true of God's goodness. How do we understand this except by the tendency to love implanted in the human heart? How is it that this divine attribute is so faintly comprehended except from the feeble development of it in the multitude of human beings? Who can understand the strength purity, fullness, and extent of divine philanthropy, but he in whom selfishness has been swallowed up in love. The same is true of all the moral perfections of the deity. These are comprehended by us only through our own moral nature. It is conscience within us, which by its approving and condemning voice interprets to us God's love of virtue and hatred of sin, and without conscience, these glorious conceptions would never have entered our minds. Conscience is the lawgiver in our own hearts. It gives us the idea of divine authority and binds us to obey it. The soul, by its sense of right or its perception of moral distinctions, is clothed with sovereignty over itself, and through this alone it understands and recognizes the sovereign of the universe. As by a natural inspiration we have agreed to speak of conscience as the voice of God, as the divinity within us, this part of our nature, when reverently obeyed, makes us more and more partakers of the moral perfection of the Supreme Being, of that very excellence which constitutes the rightfulness of His rule and enthrones Him over the universe. Without this inward law, we should be as incapable of receiving a law from heaven as the lower animals. Without this, the commandments given at Mount Sinai might startle the outward ear, but would have no meaning, no authority to the mind. I have expressed here a great truth. Nothing teaches so encouragingly our relation and resemblance to God, for the glory of the Supreme Being is eminently moral. 
We blind ourselves to his chief splendor if we think only or mainly of his power and overlook those attributes of righteousness and goodness to which he subjects his omnipotence and which are the foundations and very substance of his universal and immutable law. And are these attributes revealed to us through the causes within and convictions of our own souls? Do we understand through sympathy God's perception of the right, the good, the holy, and the just? Then how properly it is said that in his own image he made men and women. It may be objected that we receive our idea of God from the universe, from his works, and not so exclusively from our own souls. In reply, the universe I know is full of God. The heavens and earth declare his glory. In other words, the effects and signs of power, wisdom, and goodness are apparent through the whole creation. But apparent to what? Not to the outward eye, not to the most acute organs of sense, but to a kindred mind, which interprets the universe by itself. It is only through that energy of thought by which we adapt various and complicated means to distant ends and give harmony and a common bearing to multiplied exertions that we understand the creative intelligence which has established the order, dependencies, and harmony of nature. We see God around us because He dwells within us. It is by a kindred wisdom that we discern His wisdom in His works. A lesser animal who has an eye as sharp as ours looks on the universe, and the page which to us is radiant with letters of greatness and goodness is to him a blank. In truth, the beauty and glory of God's works are revealed to the mind by a light beaming from itself. We discern the effects of God's attributes in the universe by having a similar nature, and we enjoy them through sympathy. I hardly need to observe that these remarks in relation to the universe apply with equal, if not greater, force to divine revelation. I shall now be met by another objection, which to many may seem strong. It will be said that these various attributes of which I have spoken exist in God in infinite perfection, and that this rules out an affinity between the human mind and the divine mind. To this I have two replies. First, an attribute by becoming perfect does not part with its essence. Love, wisdom, power, and purity do not change their nature by enlargement. If they did, we should lose our mental grip on the Supreme Being through this very infinity. Our ideas of Him would fade away into mere sounds. For example, if wisdom in God, because unbounded, were to have no affinity with that attribute in us, why apply that term wisdom to him, for it must signify nothing? Let me ask what we mean when we say that we discern indications of intelligence in the universe. We mean that there we find evidence of a mind like our own. We certainly find evidence of no other sort of mind, so that to deny this doctrine would be to deny the evidences of a God and utterly to subvert the foundations of religious belief. Who can examine the structure of a plant or an animal and see the adaptations of its parts to each other and to common purposes, and not feel that this is the work of an intelligence akin to our own? and that we trace these signs of design by the same spiritual energy in which they had their origin. But I would offer another answer to this objection that God's infinity places him beyond the resemblance and approach of human beings. It is this, I affirm and trust that I do not speak too strongly, that there are traces of infinity in the human mind, and that in this very respect it bears a likeness to God. The very conception of infinity is an indication of a nature to which no limit can be assigned. This thought indeed comes to us not so much from abroad as from our own souls. We ascribe this attribute of infinity to God because we possess capacities and needs which only an unbounded being can fill, and because we are conscious of a tendency in spiritual abilities to unlimited expansion. We believe in the divine infinity through something congenial with it in our own hearts. 
I hope I speak clearly, and if not, I would ask those to whom I am obscure to pause before they condemn. To me, it seems that the soul, in all its higher actions, in original thought, in the creations of genius, in the soarings of imagination, in its love of beauty and grandeur, in its aspirations after a pure and unknown joy, and especially in disinterestedness, in the spirit of self-sacrifice and in enlightened devotion, has a quality of infinity. There is often a depth in human love which may be strictly called unfathomable. There is sometimes a lofty strength in moral principle which all the power of the outward universe cannot overcome. There seems a might within which can more than balance all outer might. There is also a piety which swells into an ecstasy too vast for utterance and into an immeasurable joy. I am speaking indeed of what is uncommon, but still of realities. We see, however, the tendency of the soul towards the infinite in more familiar and ordinary forms. Take, for instance, the delight which we find in the vast scenes of nature, in scenic vistas which spread around us without limits, in the immensity of the heavens and the ocean, and especially in the rush and roar of mighty winds, waves, and torrents, when, amidst our deep awe, a power within us seems to respond to the omnipotence around us. The same principle is seen in the delight we get from works of fiction or imaginative art, in which our own nature is set before us in more than human beauty and power. In truth, the soul is always bursting its limits. It thirsts continually for wider knowledge. It rushes forward to untried happiness. It has deep needs which nothing limited can appease. Its true element and goal is an unbounded good. Thus, God's infinity has its image in the soul, and through the soul, much more than through the universe, we arrive at this conception of the deity. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Channing says more about the New Testament basis of and the importance of this doctrine. I have spoken strongly in these remarks, but I have no fear of expressing too strongly the connection between the divine and the human mind. My only fear is that I shall dishonor the great subject. The danger we are most liable to is that of severing the Creator from His creatures. The propensity of human rulers to cut off communication between themselves and their subjects and to disavow any common nature with their inferiors has led the multitude of people who think of God mainly as a king to conceive of him as a being who places his glory in multiplying distinctions between himself and all other beings. The truth is that the union between the creator and the creature surpasses all other bonds in strength and intimacy. He penetrates all things and delights to irradiate all with his glory. Nature, in all its lowest and inanimate forms, is pervaded by his power, and when enlivened by the mysterious property of life, how wonderfully does it show forth the perfections of its author! How much of God may be seen in the structure of a single leaf, which, though so frail as to tremble in every wind, yet holds connections and living communications with the earth, the air, the clouds, and the distant sun, and through these sympathies with the universe is itself a revelation of an omnipotent mind. God delights to diffuse himself everywhere. Through this energy, unconscious matter clothes itself with proportions, powers, and beauties which reflect his wisdom and love. How much more must he delight to create conscious and happy recipients of his perfections, in whom his wisdom and love may substantially dwell, with whom he may form spiritual ties, and to whom he may be an everlasting source of moral energy and happiness?
to what extent the supreme being may give his attributes to his intelligent offspring, I will not stop to inquire, but I cannot doubt that his almighty goodness will impart to them powers and glories of which the material universe is but a faint emblem. I cannot doubt that the soul, if true to itself and its maker, will be filled with God and will manifest him more than the sun in the sky. Who can doubt it that believes and understands the doctrine of human immortality? The thoughts which I have given in this discourse about our participation in the divine nature seem to me to receive strong confirmation from the title or relation most frequently applied to God in the New Testament. I have reserved this as the last corroboration of this doctrine because, to my mind, it is uniquely affecting. In the New Testament, God is made known to us as a Father, and a brighter feature of those books cannot be named. Our worship is to be directed to Him as our Father. Our whole religion is to be colored by this understanding of the divinity. In this, He is to rise always to our minds. And what is it to be a Father? It is to give one's own nature, to give life to kindred beings. And the highest function of a Father is to educate the mind of the child, and to impart to it what is noblest and happiest in his own mind. God is our Father not merely because He created us, or because He gives us enjoyment, for He created the flower and the insect, yet we don't call Him their Father. This bond is a spiritual one. This name belongs to God because He makes spirits like Himself, and delights to give them what is most glorious and blessed in His own nature. Accordingly, Christianity is said, with special propriety, to reveal God as the Father, because it reveals Him as sending His Son to cleanse the mind from every stain and to replenish it forever with the spirit and moral attributes of its author. Separate from God the idea of His creating and training up beings after His own likeness, and you rob Him of His paternal quality. This relation vanishes, and with it vanishes the glory of the gospel and the dearest hopes of the human soul. The greatest use which I would make of the principles laid down in this discourse is to derive from them an accurate and clear understanding of the nature of religion. What, then, is religion? I answer that it is not the adoration of a God with whom we have no common properties, of a distinct, foreign, separate being— but rather of an all-giving parent. It recognizes and adores God as a being whom we know through our own souls, who has made humans in his own image, who is the perfection of our spiritual nature, who has sympathies with us as kindred beings, who is near to us, not in place only, like this all-surrounding atmosphere, but by spiritual influence and love, who looks on us with perpetual interest, and whose great aim it is to give us forever, and in freer and fuller streams, his own power, goodness, and joy. The conviction of this near and ennobling relation of God to the soul, and of his great purposes towards it, belongs to the very essence of true religion, and true religion manifests itself mainly and most conspicuously in desires, hopes, and efforts corresponding to this truth. True religion desires and seeks supremely the assimilation of the mind to God, or the perpetual development and enlargement of those powers and virtues by which it is constituted His glorious image. The mind, in proportion as it is enlightened and penetrated by true religion, thirsts and labors for a godlike elevation. What else, indeed, can it seek if this good be placed within its reach? If I am capable of receiving and reflecting the intellectual and moral glory of my Creator, what else in comparison shall I desire? Shall I deem a property in the outward universe as the highest good, when I may become partaker of the very mind from which it springs, of the prompting love, the disposing wisdom, the quickening power through which its order, beauty, and beneficent influences exist? 
true religion is known by these high aspirations, hopes, and efforts, and this is the religion which most truly honors God. Honoring Him is not trembling before Him as an unapproachable sovereign, not uttering barren praise which leaves us as it found us. It is to become what we praise. It is to approach God as an inexhaustible fountain of light, power, and purity. It is to feel the enlivening and transforming energy of His perfections. It is to thirst for the growth and invigoration of the divine reality within us. It is to seek the very Spirit of God. It is to trust in, to bless, to thank Him for that rich grace, mercy, and love which was revealed to us and obtained for us by Jesus Christ, and which proposes as its main goal the perfection of the human soul. I regard this understanding of religion as infinitely important. It does more than all things to make our connection with our Creator ennobling and happy, and in proportion as we lack it, there is danger that our conception of God may itself become the instrument of our degradation. That religion has been taught in ways which depress the human mind, I need not tell you. It is a truth which ought to be known that the greatness of the deity, when separated in our thoughts from his parental character, especially tends to crush human energy and hope. To a frail and dependent creature, an omnipotent creator easily becomes a terror and his worship easily degenerates into servility, flattery, self-contempt, and selfish calculation. Religion only ennobles us in as far as it reveals to us the tender and intimate connection of God with his creatures, and teaches us to see in the very greatness which might give alarm the source of great and glorious gifts to the human soul. You cannot, my hearers, think too highly of the majesty of God. But don't let this majesty sever him from you. Remember that His greatness is the infinity of attributes which you yourselves possess. Adore His infinite wisdom, but remember that this wisdom rejoices to diffuse itself, and let an exhilarating hope spring up at the thought of the immeasurable intelligence which such a father must give to his children. In like manner, adore His power. Let the boundless creation fill you with awe and admiration of the energy which sustains it. But remember that God has a nobler work than the outward creation, namely the spirit within you, and that it is his purpose to replenish this with his own energy and to crown it with growing power and triumphs over the material universe. Above all, adore his unutterable goodness. But remember that this attribute is especially proposed to you as your model. Remember that God calls you, both by nature and by revelation, to a fellowship in his philanthropy, that he has placed you in social relations for the very purpose of making you ministers and representatives of his benevolence, that he even summons you to espouse and to advance the highest purpose of his goodness which is the redemption of the human race by extending the knowledge and power of Christian truth. It is through such thoughts that religion raises up the soul and binds us by ennobling bonds to our Maker. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Channing discusses some warnings of his own and several objections that people will raise to this teaching. To complete my views on this topic, I must add an important caution. I have said that the great work of religion is to conform ourselves to God or to develop the divine likeness within us. 
But no one should infer from this language that I understand religion to require unnatural effort, straining after excitements which do not belong to the present state, or anything separate from the clear and simple duties of life. I am not exhorting you to anything over the top. I revere human nature too much to hurt it. I see too much divinity in its ordinary operations to urge on it a forced and impetuous virtue. Growing in likeness to God doesn't require us to cease being human. This likeness does not consist in extraordinary or miraculous gifts, in supernatural additions to the soul, or in anything foreign to our original constitution. To the contrary, it consists in our essential faculties being developed by vigorous and conscientious exertion in the ordinary circumstances assigned by God. To resemble our Creator, we need not escape from society and entrance ourselves in lonely contemplation and prayer. Such processes might give a feverish strength to one sort of emotions, but would result in disproportion, distortion, and sickness of mind. Our proper work is to approach God by the free and natural development of our highest powers of understanding, conscience, love, and the moral will. Will someone object that by such language I ascribe to nature the effects which can only be worked in the soul by the Holy Spirit? I have anticipated this and will answer it by simply explaining my views. I would on no account disparage the gracious aids and influences which God imparts to the human soul. The promise of the Holy Spirit is among the most precious in the sacred book. Worlds could not tempt me to part with the doctrine of God's intimate connection with the mind and of his free and full gifts to it. But these convictions are in no respect at variance with what I have taught about the method by which we are to grow in likeness to God. Scripture and experience agree in teaching that by the Holy Spirit we are to understand a divine assistance adapted to our moral freedom consistent with the fundamental truth that virtue is the mind's own work. By the Holy Spirit I understand an aid which must be gained and made effectual by our own activity an aid which no more interferes with our faculties than the assistance which we receive from our fellow humans. It is an aid which silently mingles and conspires with all other helps and means of goodness, an aid by which we develop our natural powers in a natural order, and by which we are strengthened to understand and apply the resources derived from our generous Creator. We can neither value too much nor pray too earnestly for this aid. But I ask, how does this conflict with the doctrine that God is to be approached by the exercise and development of our highest powers and affections in the ordinary circumstances of human life? I repeat, to resemble our Maker, we need not quarrel with our nature or our lot in life. Our present state, made up as it is of aids and trials, is worthy of God and may be used throughout to assimilate us to Him. For example, our family relationships, our relations of neighborhood and country, our daily interchanges of thoughts and feelings, our daily opportunities to show kindness, our daily duties to relieve need and suffering. These and the other circumstances of our social condition form the best sphere and school for that benevolence which is God's brightest attribute. And it would be a terrible mistake to trade in natural aids for any self-invented artificial means to grow in holiness. Christianity, our great guide to God, never leads us away from the path of nature and never wars against the unsophisticated dictates of conscience. We approach our Creator by every right exertion of the powers He gives us. Whenever we invigorate our understanding by honestly and resolutely seeking truth and by withstanding whatever might warp our judgment, whenever we invigorate our conscience by following it in opposition to our passions, whenever we receive a blessing gratefully, bear a trial patiently, or encounter peril or scorn with moral courage, whenever we perform a disinterested good deed, whenever we lift up the heart in true adoration to God, 
whenever we war against a habit or desire which is strengthening itself against our higher abilities, whenever we think, speak, or act with moral energy and resolute devotion to duty, be the occasion ever so humble, obscure, or ordinary, then the divinity is growing within us and we are ascending towards our author. True religion thus blends itself with everyday life. This is how we are to draw near to God without forsaking our fellow humans. This is how we clothe ourselves with the divine nature without parting with our human nature. I have now given my thoughts on the important subject of this discourse. I shall close with a brief consideration of a few objections, and along the way I shall offer some remarks on the Christian ministry which this occasion and the state of the world seem to me to demand. I anticipate what some will call an experience-based objection to this discourse, which is that I have talked of the godlike capacities of human nature and have spoken of a human being as a divinity, and what, it will be asked, warrants this high estimate of the human race. I may be told that I dream, and that I have populated the world with creatures of my lonely imagination. What? Is it only in dreams that beauty and loveliness have shined on me from human faces, that I have heard sounds of kindness which have thrilled through my heart, that I have found sympathy in suffering and a sacred joy in friendship? Are all the great and good men of past ages only dreams? Are such names as Moses, Socrates, Paul, Alfred the Great, the poet Milton, only the fictions from my disturbed slumbers? Are the great deeds of history, the discoveries of philosophy, the creations of human genius only visions? Oh no, I do not dream when I speak of the divine capacities of human nature. It is a real page in which I read of patriots and martyrs, of the monarchy-denouncing writer Francois Fenelon, of English tax protester John Hampton, and American general and president George Washington. Don't tell me these were miracles which were immeasurably separated from the human race, for the very reverence which has treasured up and hallowed their memories, the very feelings of admiration and love with which their names are now heard, show that the sources of their greatness are diffused through all your hearts. The seeds of sublime virtue are scattered freely on our earth. How often have I seen, in the obscurity of domestic life, a strength of love, of endurance, of pious trust, of virtuous resolution, which in a public sphere would have attracted public honor. I cannot but pity the man who recognizes nothing godlike in his own nature. I see the indications of God in the heavens and the earth, but how much more in a free intellect, in generosity, in unconquerable righteousness, in a love of one's fellow humans which forgives every wrong, and which never despairs of the cause of Christ and human virtue. I do and I must revere human nature. Neither the sneers of a worldly skepticism nor the groans of a gloomy theology disturb my faith in its godlike powers and tendencies. I know how it is despised, how it has been oppressed, how civil and religious establishments have for ages conspired to crush it. I know its history. I shut my eyes on none of its weaknesses and crimes. I understand the arguments by which oppressive human leaders urge that man is a wild beast which needs a master and is only safe when it is in chains. But, injured, trampled on, and scorned as our nature is, I still turn to it with intense sympathy and strong hope. The signatures of its origin and its purpose are impressed too deeply to be ever wholly erased. I bless it for its kind affections, for its strong and tender love. I honor it for its struggles against oppression, for its growth and progress under the weight of so many chains and prejudices, for its achievements in science and art, and still more for its examples of heroic and saintly virtue. These are evidences of a divine origin and the guarantee of a celestial inheritance, and I thank God that my own lot is bound up with that of the human race. When the Trinity's podcast returns, 
Channing answers another objection that even if this doctrine is true, is it appropriate to preach it? But another objection arises. It may be said, even if these claims are true, are they really appropriate for the pulpit? Are they suitable to act on ordinary minds? They may be prized by those of cultivated intellect and taste, but can the multitude understand them? Will the multitude feel them? Who is a minister supposed to serve? Surely people immersed in business and buried in the flesh on those whose whole power of thought has been spent on pleasure or gain, who are chained by habit and wedded to sin. Sooner may a diamond be scratched by a child's finger than the human heart may be pierced by refined and elevated thoughts. Only blunt instruments will impact crude, brutish minds. These people are asleep, and nothing but thunder, nothing but flashes from the everlasting fire of hell will thoroughly wake them. I have felt all along that such objections would be made to my claims, but they do not move me. I answer that I think these thoughts are powerful and uniquely adapted to the pulpit. The objection is that they are refined, but I see God accomplishing his noblest purposes by what may be called refined means. All the great agents of nature, attraction, heat, and the inner spark of life, are refined, spiritual, and invisible, acting gently, silently, and imperceptibly. Yet brute matter is affected by their power, and is transformed by them into surpassing beauty. Electrical properties, which are unseen, unfelt, and everywhere diffused, are infinitely more efficient and bring about infinitely nobler productions than when they break forth in thunder. Much less can I believe that in the moral world, noise, menace, and violent appeals to our animal passions, to fear and selfishness, are God's chosen means of calling forth spiritual life, beauty, and greatness. Human nature is nearly always receptive to grateful and generous influences, resonating with superior virtue, And here are inner causes and tendencies to which a generous teaching, if simple, sincere, and fresh from the soul, may confidently appeal. It is objected that people can't understand the thoughts which seem to me so precious. This objection I am eager to push back on, for the ordinary intellect has been grievously kept down and wronged by a belief in its incompetence. The pulpit would do more good were the mass of human beings not looked down upon and treated as children. Happily for the human race, the time is passing away in which intellect was thought the monopoly of a few, and the majority were given over to hopeless ignorance. Science is leaving her solitudes to enlighten the multitude. How much more may religious teachers take courage to speak to people on subjects which are nearer to them than the properties of law and matter, I mean their own souls? The multitude, you say, lack the ability to receive great truths relating to their spiritual nature. But what, let me ask you, is the Christian religion? It is a spiritual system intended to turn our minds upon ourselves, to make us capable of watchfulness over thought, imagination, and passion, to establish us in an intimacy with our own souls. What are all the Christian virtues which we are exhorted to love and seek? I answer, pure and high motions or actions of the mind. That refinement of thought, which I am told transcends the ordinary intellect, belongs to the very essence of Christianity. In confirmation of these claims, I observe that the human mind seems to be turning itself more and more inward and to be growing more alive to its own worth and its abilities to advance. The spirit of education shows this, and so does the spirit of freedom. 
There is a spreading conviction that we were made for a higher purpose than to be a beast of burden or a creature of sense. The divinity is stirring within the human heart and demanding a culture and a freedom worthy of the child of God. Let religious teaching correspond to this advancement of the mind. Let it rise above the technical, obscure, and frigid theology which has come down to us from times of ignorance, superstition, and slavery. Let it penetrate the human soul and reveal it to itself. No preaching, I believe, is so understandable as that which is true to human nature and helps men and women to read their own spirits. But the objection which I have stated not only represents us as incapable of understanding, but even incapable of being moved, enlivened, sanctified, and saved by such thoughts as I have given. If by this objection nothing more is meant than that these thoughts are not alone or of themselves sufficient, I shall not dispute it, for true and glorious as they are, they do not constitute the whole truth, and I do not expect great moral effects from a narrow and partial understanding of our nature. I have spoken of the godlike capacities of the soul, but other and very different elements enter into the human being. We have animal propensities as well as intellectual and moral powers. A human has a body as well as a mind. He has passions to war against his reason and self-love to war against his conscience. He is a free being, an attempted being, and being this way, he may and does sin, and often sins grievously. To such a being, Religion or virtue is a conflict requiring great spiritual effort which is performed in habitual watchfulness and prayer, and all the motives are needed by which force and constancy may be given to the will. I do not advise the preacher to talk constantly of human beings as made but a little lower than the angels, but I would not narrow him to any class of topics. Let him adapt himself to our whole and various nature. Let him summon to his aid all the powers of this world and the world to come. Let him bring to bear on our consciences and hearts both God's milder and his more frightening attributes, the promises and threats of the divine word, the lessons of history and the warnings of experience. Let the wages of sin here and hereafter be taught clearly and earnestly. But amidst the various motives to spiritual effort which the minister can appeal to, none are more enlivening than those drawn from the soul itself and from God's desire and purpose to exalt it by every aid consistent with its freedom. These truths, I believe, should be mixed together with all the others, and without them all others fail to promote a generous virtue. Will you object that the minister's proper work is to preach Christ, not to preach the dignity of human nature? I answer that Christ's greatness is manifested in the greatness of the nature which he was sent to redeem, and that his chief glory consists in this, that he came to restore God's image where it was obscured or defaced, and to give an everlasting impulse and life to what is divine within us. Will you object that the wickedness of sin should be the minister's main topic? I answer that this wickedness can only be understood and felt when sin is viewed as the ruin of God's noblest work, as darkening a light brighter than the sun, as carrying discord, bondage, disease, and death into a mind made for perpetual progress towards its author. Will you object that Terror is the most important instrument when it comes to saving souls? I answer that if by terror is meant a rational and moral fear, a conviction and dread of the unutterable evil incurred by a mind which wrongs, betrays, and destroys itself, then I am the last to deny its importance. But a fear like this, which regards the debasement of the soul as the greatest of evils, is plainly founded upon and proportioned to our understanding of the greatness of our nature. The more common sort of terror, which is induced by means of vivid images of torture and bodily pain, is a very questionable way to promote virtue. 
When strongly awakened, this terror generally injures our character, breaks us down into cowards and slaves, brings our intellect to cringe before human authority, makes us abject before our Maker, and by a natural reaction of the mind often terminates in a presumptuous confidence which is altogether distinct from virtuous self-respect and is uniquely hostile to the unassuming charitable spirit of Christianity. The preacher should rather strive to fortify the soul against physical pains than to bow it to their mastery, teaching it to dread nothing in comparison with sin, and to dread sin as the ruin of a noble nature. To repeat, men and women are to be enlivened and raised by appeals to their highest aspects. Even the convicts in a prison may be touched by kindness, generosity, and especially by a tone, look, and address which express hope and respect for their nature. I know that the doctrine of ages has been that terror, restraint, and bondage are the chief safeguards of human virtue and peace, but we have begun to learn that affection, confidence, respect, and freedom are mightier as well as nobler causes. People can be affected by generous influences. I wish that this truth was better understood by religious teachers. Generous influences too seldom proceed from the pulpit. In the church we too seldom hear a voice to enliven and exalt us. Religion, speaking through her public organs, seems often to forget her natural tone of elevation. The character of God, the principles of His government, His relations to the human family— the purposes for which he brought us into being, the nature which he has given us, and the condition in which he has placed us, these and the like topics, though the very highest which can enter the mind, are often set forth in such a way as to narrow and degrade the hearers, disheartening and oppressing the timid and sensitive with gloom, and infecting less refined minds with the unholy spirit of intolerance, presumption, and exclusive pretension to have the favor of God. I know and rejoice to know that preaching in its worst forms nonetheless does good, for so bright and piercing is the light of Christianity that it somewhat penetrates the thickest clouds with which we surround it. But I also know that evil mixes with the good, and I would be unfaithful to my deep convictions if I did not say that human nature requires for its elevation more generous treatment from the teachers of religion. To conclude, let the minister cherish a reverence for his own nature. Let him never despise it even in its most forbidding forms. Let him delight in its beautiful and lofty manifestations. Let him hold fast, as one of the great qualifications for his office, a faith in the greatness of the human soul, that faith which looks beneath the perishing body, beneath the sweat of the laborer, beneath the rags and ignorance of the poor, beneath the vices of the sensual and selfish, and discerns in the depths of the soul a divine aspect." a ray of the infinite light which may yet break forth and shine as the sun in the kingdom of God. Let him strive to awaken in his hearers a consciousness of the heavenly treasure within them, a consciousness of possessing what is of more worth than the outward universe. Let hope give life to all his labors. Let him speak to people as to beings generously gifted by and made for God. Let him always look at his congregation with the encouraging trust that he has hearers prepared to respond to the simple, genuine utterance of great truths and to the noblest workings of his own mind. Let him feel deeply for those in whom the divine nature is overwhelmed by the passions. Let him sympathize tenderly with those in whom it begins to struggle, to mourn for sin and to thirst for new life. Let him guide those in whom it has gained strength, so as to give life to higher and diviner virtue in them. Let him strive to infuse courage, willingness to work hard, devout trust, and an inflexible will into people's labors for their own perfection. In one word, let him cherish an unfaltering and growing faith in God as the Father and life-giver of the human mind, 
and in Christ as its triumphant and immortal friend. I do not say that by such preaching he is to work miracles. I do not expect or desire that he will rival in sudden and outward effects what is brought about by the preachers of a low and terrifying theology. I am far from believing that, just like that, all will be made better. His ministry is to influence free beings who, after all, must determine themselves, who have a power to withstand all outside influences, and who are not to be saved by mere preaching, but rather by their own prayers and toil. Still, I believe that such a minister will be a benefactor beyond all praise to the human soul. I believe and know that on those who will open themselves to his influence, he will work deeply, powerfully, and gloriously. His function is the highest under heaven, and his reward will be a growing power of spreading truth, virtue, moral strength, love, and happiness without limit and without end. Next week, as promised a couple of episodes ago, I'll offer some critical thoughts and responses to the ideas of Channing in the last several podcasts. This week's thinking music has been the track Great Expectations by Kai Engel. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. Also check out that blog post for links and scriptural citations relevant to this episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.